Hello, I'm Eric Sorensen, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, April 8th. On the show this week, last-minute high-level talks to push a NAFTA deal to the finish line. How close are we to a done deal, and can we get a good deal? Then, as President Trump announces more tariffs against China, how to explain the impact of his tumultuous leadership? We talk to the columnist best known for explaining the world, the New York Times' Thomas Friedman. And legalized marijuana is just months away. Provinces are laying the groundwork. And yet critics want more safeguards. Will Ottawa make changes to the final bill? But first, late this week, Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland went to Washington to meet with her American and Mexican counterparts amid rumors of a deal suddenly getting close on NAFTA. They had dinner together and were all smiles when a Mexican photographer tracked them down. Here's what President Trump said on Thursday. Working very hard on NAFTA with Mexico and Canada. And, you know, we'll have something, I think, fairly soon. There's no rush. We get it done right or we'll terminate. Joining us now from Vancouver is James Moore, former cabinet minister under Stephen Harper and a member of the government's advisory council on NAFTA. So, James, we're talking to you before we've heard any new details. But if we're getting closer, how so? Because it seems like the Americans may have blinked first to get this to the finish line. Well, I think the world is learning, and certainly the government of Canada has learned, that with President Trump, you respond, but you don't react. You know, this is a president who's gone from saying that NAFTA is the worst deal in history to saying that it only needs minor tweaks, to saying that he's going to tear it up, to now being satisfied with the negotiations as we're going through. And we're actually not even close to really the halfway mark of going through all 22 chapters of NAFTA. So, you know, the president can say what he wants to say. Canada is doing the responsible thing of going through the negotiating process, putting forward reasonable proposals that we think we'll have tripartite uh, agreement. But I think, you know, if, if the president genuinely has shifted on being antagonistic towards NAFTA, towards wanting to land at a NAFTA 2.0 that has reasonable compromises that are to the benefits of all three partners on a North American economic platform and shift his focus to the ongoing now new saga with China, um, then I think that's good news for Canada. There's a bigger storm cloud now on the horizon about the global dynamics of trade. But it means that the dynamic with NAFTA could well be, you know, something that President Trump has sort of realized is actually to the American interest. Yeah, and, and you mentioned China, and it, it seems like, uh, you know, the tariff war might be uh, occupying their, their resources now, and they might want to get NAFTA dealt with, and the Mexicans are the same. They, they have a, an election coming up. They would like to get this done uh, with the current government. Canada's not in a bad position in that way, given that we are a smaller partner. Well, generally speaking, time is on our side, but I mean, Canada also still has to be very cautious that, of course, we have a president who seems to change his mind rather rapidly. But once a reform NAFTA might be arrived at, a NAFTA 2.0, then it has to go back to the domestic legislatures of the United States, Canada, Mexico in order for to have ratification. So in Canada's position, with Prime Minister Trudeau having a majority government and presumably, um, you know, pro-free trade voices in the Conservative Party wanting to work towards a, a positive outcome, depending on the details, of course. But I mean, the Mexican government of course is in the middle in the midst now of, of the nomination process the primary process towards their campaign which will be realized in July and American politics is about to get incredibly hot with the with the midterm elections this fall so the ability of a NAFTA 2.0 to be negotiated is one thing but for it to be affirmed through the legislative process of all three governments is a very different story given that frankly you know six months after the Las Vegas shootings the American government still hasn't managed to find a way to reasonably arrive at banning bump stocks through the 
American process. So, you know, I think the legislative process of a reform NAFTA being approved through the American system is a very still very much a, a long-term project. So we'll see as we move forward what this dynamic is going to look like because there are still plenty of anti-NAFTA, anti-trade antagonists in both the Republican and Democrat parties. And the, the politics of this is going to be an ongoing fight in the American, uh, in the American political arena. It sounds like the auto content part of this has swung a little bit in Canada's favor. What are the other bottom line areas you think for Canada to, to have a satisfactory deal? Well, I mean, you know, the, the Americans came into this. They triggered this negotiation. They had their five big demands, you know, to to uh, tackle supply management, to get a better deal on the auto sector, to uh, have a five-year sunset clause. Government procurement was was a key element, and to end uh, the the dynamic of having trade deficits going forward. I mean, the, the, all frankly, all five of those proposals have real challenges in terms of actually be, being able to deliver those things in in ways that wouldn't entirely spoil the agreement altogether. But I think, frankly, for domestic politics for president. President Trump in the Rust Belt states, in the auto states, in the United States, talking about Michigan and Ohio, um, Indiana, elsewhere in the Midwest of the United States, that gave Donald Trump his presidency in 2016. I think there's more than enough here in a reform NAFTA for Donald Trump to go back to those states and say, we tackled NAFTA and we did substantive reforms to NAFTA, this 24-year-old agreement that has had some tweaks over the years, but we got some substantive reforms that will support the North American auto assembly dynamic for the, for the ongoing future in a way that will benefit the American working man and I think you know if that's the narrative that he wants to be able to say in those states I think we've arrived actually at a package within the, the context of the existing NAFTA framework that could actually be very beneficial to the Canadian automotive sector particularly the automotive parts sector which is entirely integrated with the North American supply chains on the on the auto side so I think this actually could be a win-win on the auto side and the politics of it will be whatever it'll be but I, and I think that's really what President Trump is looking for is to match his anti-NAFTA rhetoric on the auto side with some real deliverables, and I think a reform NAFTA could actually um, meet that uh, challenge. And you mentioned uh, sort of the Midwest for the U.S. being so important to President Trump. On the supply management dairy side of things, I think he needs this for Wisconsin. Do you think that there's going to have to be some give there because Wisconsin was so important to win the presidency for him? Well, we'll see. I mean, this is actually where the politics on the con congressional side could become uh, very interesting. The government of Canada, look, th there is broadly speaking, people can have debates in Canada about supply management. That's perfectly fine. But if you look at in the Parliament of Canada, whether it's Prime Minister Trudeau, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, or the NDP, there is actually consensus in the Parliament of Canada to support Canada's supply-managed industries. And so, you know, Donald Trump said what he said in Wisconsin in defense, particularly of the dairy sector in, in the state of Wisconsin. And, of course, Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, is from Wisconsin as well. And so we'll see. If Donald Trump doesn't get something that is a radical reform to the satisfaction of Paul Ryan, then Donald Trump actually may well have a battle with his, in his own party of being able to deliver a NAFTA 2.0 through a congressional approval process if Paul Ryan doesn't think that he's done enough on his approach. Now, Paul Ryan has also put forward uh, his idea of a border tax uh, that Donald Trump has already said he's not interested in. And if on top of that, Donald Trump brushes Paul, Mar uh, Paul Ryan aside and says, we're not going to have radical reforms on the dairy side to Paul Ryan's satisfaction, well then I think you actually now, Donald Trump gets into a real challenging position here of delivering a NAFTA 2.0 through the congressional process with some opposition from Republicans who are going into, it is going to be a very tough midterm season for them this coming fall for Republicans to maintain control of Congress. And so it frankly could very well have an impact on Paul Ryan's decision whether or not to seek the speakership a second time or even to seek re-election this fall. Well, the NAFTA talks seem to be speeding up. James Moore, thanks for talking to us. Pleasure's mine.
Tariff threats, border threats, attacks against the media, but not against Russia's President Putin. U.S. President Trump's conduct is having an impact on U.S. power and standing on the global stage. The New York Times' Thomas Friedman's latest book is Thank You for Being Late, an optimist's guide to thriving in the age of accelerations. But his optimism is tempered these days, declaring that Donald Trump is a disturbed person who has eroded the norms of the U.S. presidency. Joining us now from Washington, Thomas Friedman. Mr. Friedman, talk to us about the dangers you see posed to your country by your own president. Well, I think the greatest threat to American democracy today is sitting uh, right in the Oval Office, Eric. We have a, we have a president who is a disturbed person. Um, and um, he is really not trying to be president of the United States. He's actually just trying to be president of his base. Uh, he's done almost nothing to reach out to um, non-Trump voting Americans. But much more importantly, um, he is attacking, uh, I think, the very uh, institutions that preserve our democracy, starting with the press, uh, his whole shtick on fake news is a, an attempt to basically to delegitimize mainstream media um, and then to open the way uh, to direct his Twitter feed uh, unfettered right into the hearts and minds of every American. Um, it's hugely dangerous. And on the global stage, he's uh, been undermining and seeking to undermine uh, the, the institutions that have been the pillar of uh, the global order since, since World War II, whether it's uh, on the trade front, institutions like NAFTA that would very much affect Canada, uh, the World Trade Organization, the United Nations. Um, Trump has a very 19th century um, you know, model of the world. It's America versus everybody else. Everything's a zero-sum game. And the idea that um, we don't have this huge number of global issues that require global governance, uh, not just one single government taking them on, um, is, uh, is totally foreign to him. So uh, uh, he's unlike anything we've had before, and um, we can survive four years of him, I suspect. Eight years would be a disaster. Your book, Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist's Guide to Thriving in an Age of Accelerations. I'm not sure all of that would fit on one tweet, but it speaks to the fear in a rapidly changing world. And didn't Donald Trump get that part right? Absolutely. Um, you know, some things are true even if Donald Trump believes them. And uh, I would say his opponents, uh, Democrats, need to keep that in mind. Um, uh, for instance, it's true we really do have a trade issue with China. It's true that we cannot take every immigrant. I mean, just to give you a couple of examples. Um, and we have to have smart policies uh, on all of those. He tends to take those truths, so in a more destructive direction. His opponents need to take them in a constructive direction. But have no doubt, Trump connects up at the gut level. And most people listen through their stomachs, not through their ears. Uh, with, with, with a lot of Americans, and I, I, wouldn't, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't diminish his, uh, his polling power um, for the long term. You know, I think you do that at your peril. Seems to me the genius of America was to be the most powerful country in the world, and the world by and large was okay with that. But now it is on the one hand ceding power to China and Russia, and the rest of the world is losing trust in America. I mean, can the United States regain its position in the world? You know, it's the old saying that our government was a system, you know, designed by geniuses to be run by idiots. And we are definitely, you know, testing that theory right now. Um, uh, you know, there's no question. We get enormous public goods. Um, uh, we get enormous benefits, I should say, for um, helping create enormous number of global public goods, whether it was these global institutions like the IMF, UN, World Bank, NATO, um, uh, the World Trade System. And it's true that in the past, maybe we paid a little more uh, than other countries, but uh, I think we derived enormous uh, benefits from them as well. 
uh, maybe there should be some adjustments in how much we pay now, you know, uh, low some 70 years after the end of World War II. That, that's, that's fine. Um, but again, just impugning and uh, denigrating these institutions, uh, we would truly miss them when they're gone. These institutions are extremely hard to build. Things like a NAFTA, for instance, which Canadians know so well. And um, if you take them apart, uh, you know, the next person who comes in doesn't just, you know, with a snap of uh, his or her fingers, uh, resurrect them. So that's what's worrying to me. How do you see NAFTA playing out at this point? I mean, here in Canada, we are always interested in that. Well, I'm a huge NAFTA fan. I mean, um, because we have uh, in North America uh, this incredible bounty of having a single platform. Uh, where uh, you have Canada, a, a company that can offer both natural resources and high-tech knowledge workers. Uh, you have Mexico with as, uh, lower skilled workers, but also a lot of rising you know, high-tech engineering workers. Um, and you have America in the middle with its mix of both. But culturally, um, there's, there's a lot of ease of, of, of uh, eliminating barriers between us. Um, yes, you know, that we have the Spanish language in differentiation, some French language in, in, uh, in Canada, but a lot of bilingualism. And uh, to put it at its deepest cultural uh, dimension, it's, it's all a kind of Judeo-Christian platform in that um, uh, these, the religions of, of uh, these people, not entirely obviously, but there's an easy fit. Whereas Europe has had this struggle of, you know, their, their South is, is, uh, is Islam and they've had a harder time integrating Islam into their platform. So, so we have a, an enormous advantage in that there's, there's a much more seamless cultural fit in our global platform versus the European one, I would say versus the Asia one. Um, and uh, while you know, Europe's done uh, some work to overcoming the differences in, in, uh, in their platform, as it were, we've got a wonderful fit. And um, we would not want to give that up. That would be crazy thing to do. And now the U.S. is beginning a tariff war with China. Again, of great interest to Canadians. How is that going to play out? Well, you know, again, some things are true, even if Donald Trump believes them. And um, one of the things that's true is that China has been ripping off uh, our intellectual capital, and I suspect Canada's, um, uh, you know, over the last 20 years. We thought China was going to reform and open when we let China into the World Trade Organization in 2001. And instead, China reformed and closed. Um, uh, it created an environment where it could grow these big companies like Alibaba and Tencent in a protected market and then unleash them on the world. And so, look, I'm a big free trader. Um, I really want to see US, China, Canada all you know, in a seamless kind of economic relationship. But I, I don't think Trump is wrong to kind of call them out on this. I'm totally against the steel stuff. That's a totally different issue. Um, and uh, again, we're so lucky to have a partner like Canada, uh, a nation that uh, shares our free market, um, democratic values, is a pluralistic society. Uh, as a neighbor, the last thing we'd want to do is alienate them. And I feel the same about Mexico. Uh, the strongest way to help Mexico uh, become a good neighbor is, is through institutions like NAFTA that lift its standards and lift its economic growth and uh, create a context where Mexicans want to stay more at home than come to a foreign country. Why would anyone want to go to a foreign country if they could stay uh, in their own? And so uh, NAFTA was more important than just trade. You wouldn't have, I don't think, the healthy democracy you have in Mexico today, albeit with its problems that all democracies have, without NAFTA. I want to bring it back a little bit to where we started, Donald Trump. He has said no one has been tougher on Russia than Donald Trump. But it seems to me that he's the president that the Russians would love to have in office as long as possible. 
Well, you know, as I pointed out, you know, um, uh, Trump's behavior and posture toward Putin, basically, um, has been inexplicable given uh, the role that our intelligence agencies have identified that the Russians played in perverting our last election. And leaves you uh, able to draw only one of uh, a couple of conclusions. Either Trump is personally compromised, um, uh, that Putin has something on him, uh, or he's a towering fool um, and uh, is rejecting the evidence presented by our major intelligence services to Russia's intervention. Um, or there's a third option. He actually likes Russia intervening in our elections because they're intervening on his behalf. But none of those three conclusions are very good for Americans. Uh, and it's true he has undertaken sanctions, but they were obviously forced on him you know, by the intelligence community, by the national security structure. Now, um, I'm not for war with Russia, war with Putin. There are problems around the world that we can only, we can only solve with Russia's um, uh, cooperation. But um, we have to be very firm with them at the same time. These, these people intervened in our election. And, um, uh, you know, Putin could use a high fastball, you know, right toward his chin, to put it in baseball terms, uh, from America. And, and Donald Trump um, has, uh, has proven utterly incapable of doing that. He's, he's either besotted with Putin, he's either a fool, or he is an intelligent asset of Putin. You said earlier the U.S. can survive four years with Donald Trump as president. It has been a long 15 months so far. Does the president survive, you think, for four years, given the Mueller report, the midterm elections that are coming, and a possible impeachment? Certainly, you know, with the midterms coming up, you could see a flip in both the House and the Senate, and that would uh, potentially impact Trump's tenure in office. You have the Mueller investigation. That could have an impact as well. But I'll tell you, Eric, um, as someone who didn't vote for Trump, um, uh, I, I would tell you this. I, I would not want him impeached unless it is on you know, the basis of, of very clear and unimpeachable evidence. I think it's very important for the country um, that he be voted out the way he was voted in. Otherwise, his supporters will feel, uh, will feel very aggrieved. I think that greatest thing, the healthiest thing that could happen in America uh, in the midterms is that the Republicans be crushed. I think they'd, they'd be crushed in the House, they'd be crushed in the Senate, and forced to go back and look at themselves in the mirror and see what they've done to their party, how, how they've just turned it into this um, institution that is ready to sell itself to whoever makes the highest bid to energize their base. Whoever can energize their base, they will sell themselves to, whether it's Rush Limbaugh, Sarah Palin, the Tea Party, then Trump. And that's why there's no core to the Republican Party before a country, a party, excuse me, that was deficit hawks, suddenly said, spend all the money you want. You know, a party that was always stood for free trade says, let's go with protectionism, because Trump's for protectionism and Trump energizes our base. So it's a party that's completely lost its way. And to be a healthy democracy, I think we need a healthy conservative party one that's focused more on markets and merit-based solutions to problems as, uh, to, to be uh, in competition with a progressive party, one that favors bigger government and stronger safety nets. And in between the two, you find the healthy solutions. Right now, we do not have a healthy conservative party. We have a, a, a party that's really completely lost its way, um, and that is basically defending and embracing a deeply disturbed person. Thomas Friedman, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Legalized marijuana is supposed to be in place by this summer. 
but critics of the government's proposed bill say changes are needed to help law enforcement, to ensure safeguards for health, and to keep illegal cannabis off the streets and away from young people. Five committees in the Senate are studying the bill, and many senators are promising changes before the bill goes back to the House. What will the final law look like? Joining us now from Thunder Bay is Bill Blair, Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Justice and the Minister of Health. Mr. Blair, by our count, your town hall in Thunder Bay this past week was your 23rd. What's the feedback you're getting from Canadians? Actually, it, it, the feedback is excellent. And, and I found in, at the town hall we did yesterday in Thunder Bay, people are, are very well informed. And they had some very interesting and I think pertinent questions. And it was a very good discussion. I was, I was, I was very pleased with the results of, of this. I think people are starting to have a better understanding of, of what the government's intent is and how this is beginning to roll out. Uh, but there's still lots of questions that, and that's one of the reasons I'm still traveling across the country and, 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 and engaging in these town halls and having conversations with people. And in addition to the town halls, we also had meeting with some of the local law enforcement officials uh, from the area, with people uh, from the school boards, and also from indigenous communities. And those conversations are also really Im important so that we help those communities be ready for the eventual implementation that will take place. But what would you say are Canadians' main concerns still? Well, you know, they, they, they want to know that there's going to be an orderly implementation, and, and, and so we shared some of the plans. There's a lot of discussion about what the, the provincial uh, response will be and in, in how it'll be distributed. But we've, we're starting to get a far better insight into the provincial plans as that information is rolling out. And people are really are, are, are talking a lot about the public education campaign and how important it is. And we've begun to roll that publication, uh, that, that public education campaign out, and, and so directing people to it so they can see the type of information that we're making available to them, to parents, teachers, to doctors, and particularly to kids, I think is really important to Canadians. Last month, the Senate nearly defeated the cannabis bill. It's likely to come forward at the very least with some proposed changes. What are you looking at that would make sense in the way of amendments or tweaks? Well, I think that the, the Senate has an opportunity to do some really important work, and I know that there are, are, are four subcommittees and then the, the, the main committee that will be reviewing this bill. And they're looking at a number of different aspects, and, and they're making a very, I think, a deep inquiry into it. And, and so I, that parliamentary process of the, of the Senate's review has the opportunity to make sure the bill is as good as it possibly can be to serve the interests of all Canadians. And so we're looking forward to the completion of that work. And, and, and frankly, I would not speculate on, on what the outcome of that work might be, but we're, we're quite prepared to work with them and, and to deal with that uh, as it unfolds. But as you look at this, and now you've been getting all of this feedback, is there an area where you can identify and you're saying, we're going to need to make a little bit of an adjustment here? Well, you know, I think as people become better informed about some of the, the, the plans the government has put in place, you know, there's been a lot of questions around packaging, advertising, and promotion. And we've, we've now made that avail information available to Canadians so they have a better understanding of how that will unfold. Um, certainly, we've been working very closely with the law enforcement community, and they, they had concerns about access to, to training and resources and technology. But we've been able to answer those questions, and we're working very closely with them. And, and, and I'm, I'm finding a greater uh, level of confidence among my, my former colleagues in, in, in law enforcement that they'll be ready to, to begin to make improvements. And I think everybody's coming to a realization this is not an event, it's a process. It's a process of orderly implementation, and, and we are putting in the, the necessary resources and, and the infrastructure to make sure that it's going to work. And I think as pe people become more familiar with that, more comfortable with that, we'll have a better understanding on how this will unfold. As a former police chief, what's your main concern for law enforcement? There are certainly concerns being raised about how to test for impairment. Well, and, and, and we're making sure that the police have the training to, to detect for standardized field sobriety testing with, for the drug recognition experts, that they have access to, to new technologies and new authorities so that they can keep our roadways safe. Now, we're giving the police exactly what they've been asking for for nearly a decade. 
and we've worked for the last two and a half years very closely with them, and the bills reflect their input. And, and, and I'm, I'm very confident that, that they're working you know, very, very diligently to make sure that they're ready. They know they've got an important job to do. I, I, I think the, the, the main concern for law enforcement, they want to be able to be effective and to do their job to uphold the new regulations, and, and they also have a significant role to play. As we move forward with a regulated market, we want to displace the illicit market. And so the, 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 the involvement of organized crime is primarily the responsibility of the, of the police. And we've been able to assure them that all of the laws and the tools that they currently have to fight organized crime are retained in this new bill, but they now have new tools and, and new resources that they'll be able to bring to bear. Obviously, you want underage young people not to get access to this, and yet they're the ones who've been saying it's easier to get dope than booze, but it's still going to be easier to plant marijuana seeds than to manufacture alcohol. Well, you know, the, w one of the things we've doing is, is we've been working with the provinces and territories, and in virtually every province and territory in this country, there will be regulations prohibiting the purchase, possession, and consumption of cannabis for people under the age of majority. And, and so those are, are, are far more effective uh, regulatory tools that will be available to law enforcement to enforce that prohibition. But we're not just enforcing the law. We've, we've launched a very significant public education campaign, invested nearly $108 million in a public education campaign that will give young people better information about the health risks and the social risks that cannabis represents to them so that they might make better decisions. And the combination of restricting their access to it and, and educating them about the, the harms and the risks that they face with this drug, I think the combination of those two things will be very effective in changing their perception of, of this drug. We've, we've seen some success with using the same type of tools for tobacco regulation and control. And, and so we're moving ahead with, with, with both of those uh, approaches to, to keep this out of the hands of kids and also the profits away from the people that are exploiting them. So provinces are already building in profits and costs into their budgeting. Can you give us a timeline now, at least a ballpark, since July 1st seems to be off the table? Well, July 1st was never on the table. That's Canada Day. But we were aiming to get this done by July of 2018. You know, again, we have great respect for the parliamentary processes that are underway currently in the Senate. And when they've completed their work and the bill comes back to the House, when it achieves royal assent, we've also, in discussions with the provinces, territories, with distributors and, with the, and, the, and the producers, recognized that we need about 8 to 12 weeks to manage an orderly implementation post-royal assent. And so the regulations will be ready, will be ready to go, but when that royal assent takes place, we've got some work to do for an orderly rollout, an implementation right across the country. And so I think Canadians can anticipate within that two-month window of royal assent, uh, we will, the government of Canada will establish and announce a date of implementation. What happens to those businesses that are licensed to sell pot right now? Will they be put out of business? Well, first of all, the licensed producers, that currently they're only licensed to produce for, for a medical marijuana market, and, and those licenses will be re reviewed and, and expanded to include the, the non-medical uh, market. And we've, we've got about 98 of those licenses that have currently been approved, and there's several hundred more in the queue and, and, and ready to go. The only legal cannabis that's available today in Canada is that which is obtained through a licensed producer through their mail order system. With the implementation of the new regulations, the provinces are establishing their own regulated distribution networks, and the cannabis will, will go from the licensed producer to the provincial regulatory body and from the regulatory body to the distribution systems that the provinces have established. Are there any concerns about celebrity endorsers? You know, they're not supposed to endorse, but when you have names like Snoop Dogg or Gene Simmons, hearing them perhaps getting involved in this in a business venture, what's your concern? Well, and, and I'll tell you, the, the law is explicit and clear. 
that, that celebrity endorsement, lifestyle advertising is not allowed for, for, with cannabis. We've, we've brought in regulations that place responsible and, and, and strict conditions on all advertising, packaging and labeling uh, in order to make sure that this is not attractive to young people, for example. And, and certainly, I, I want to be really clear, it's not the government's intention to promote the use of this drug. We want to, for those adult Canadians who make the choice to use cannabis, we, we want to be able, them to be able to make a, a healthier, socially responsible choice to obtain it from a, a legitimate source. But we are not, we are not allowing you know, the, the heavy marketing that we've seen with other products, alcohol, for example. And so there'll be severe restrictions, including on things like celebrity endorsement and sponsorship. We were looking at the, at the new logo for the signs in Ontario. They are very plain. It's like you're going to sell this product, but you don't want to sell it much. Well, I, I want to be really clear. It, it's certainly not the government's intention to promote the, the use of this drug, but to give Canadian adults a legal, socially responsible choice. And at the same time, we've urged the provinces and territories to begin very strict and cautious. You know, I, I think you can be very strict and with experience and time if you find that you can, you can ease up or, or perhaps alter the, 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 your approach. That's something that can be done. But if you start loose and, and, and with, with little control, it's very difficult to get strict and get control afterwards. And so we've urged the provinces to be careful, to be cautious. And, and, I, and I would say in my conversations with all the provinces and territories, they've really taken that to heart because our, our number one policy goal is to keep this out of the hands of kids and to displace that illicit market and, and not to promote the use of this drug. Bill Blair, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you, Eric. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block.